Hey, it's uh, another episode of On the Wing Podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. I'm your host, Bob St. Pierre, and joining me today is Public Relations Manager, Jared Wickland. Good afternoon. Afternoon, morning, whenever you're listening, evening, (laughs) 3 a.m., whenever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for joining us. And and, uh, today's episode was spurred... On, or the, the catalyst for the episode was an email from uh, the gentleman that I'm going to introduce in a moment. Um, middle of January, he sends, sends me a note. I want to do a podcast. I want to talk Habitat. I'm like, Matt, it's, it, it's January. It's like January 12th right now. It, perfect. It's the time that we got to start talking about Habitat. And he's absolutely right. Um, Matt O'Connor, if you are in the state of Iowa, there is no doubt in my mind if you've been to a Pheasants Forever uh, banquet or been associated with Pheasants Forever over the course of the last 30 years. No introduction needed. You know Matt O'Connor, and and Matt is our guest uh, for this particular episode. Welcome to On the Wing Podcast, Matt O'Connor. It's great to be here. The dinosaur is in the room. Let's put it that way. These podcasts are a new thing to me, and I figured, what the heck, I'm going to give it a try. So, so as we prepped, you said uh, you've been you've been devouring podcasts for the last two weeks, uh, trying to get to know what to do on these. So, so you're you're an old pro now. Well, I'm from the television. <laughs> I can't figure out how anybody can sit for 90 minutes and listen to this stuff. But I'm but I'm learning. I'm learning about it. <laughs> was the television era black and white? No, I, but you know what? I have been listening at 2 a.m. in the morning. If I get up at night, I'll go try to go through a podcast or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, if uh, if folks aren't from the state of Iowa, there's a chance that they haven't met you before. Although you are kind of uh, um, one of the most tenured employees of Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. You have been on. Almost 30 years. 29th year coming 29th up. 29th right? year. March year. 1st, I think. So how did it all begin for you? Well, it all began with just Pheasants Forever as what Pheasants Forever is, you know, a chapter organization empowering local chapters to do good things. And that's really where I started. I helped start the um, chapter in Guthrie County, As Iowa. a volunteer? As a volunteer, yep. I remember uh, Jim Woolley coming to the very first meeting and, and uh, sending out letters to banks and to businesses and talk about that. You know, we wanted to we wanted to fight back on on pheasants and try to get them back into the area. That was that was in the early, mid 1980s. You knew you knew Owen Denny personally something. well, right? Yes, <laughs> yes. And uh, it was right before the start of CRP. You know, and then things were bleak in Iowa. Huh. I always when I talked to people, I said some of these really tough times where we that we go through with pheasants are not new. You know, we've been there before. We've been there in northern Iowa where we never thought we'd ever see another pheasant back in the 80s. And and when CRP came around, it just changed. You know, it opened up a lot of eyes, and we showed what Habitat could do, and uh, it was fantastic. And, you know, we're going – we're we've, we've gone through another phase of really tough going, and, and it's turning around, at least in my state. You know, after about eight years of pretty rough pheasant numbers, uh, the last – two years they've been slowly sneaking back up and mm-hmm. we really had a jump this year and and we had some C- new crp and that new habitat makes a big difference and um i've been as happy as i've been in 10 years 
<laughs> because of, I've been able to chase roosters again. So when um, pre-CRP, so CRP was born in 1985. Um, so you, you talked about pre-CRP starting this chapter. Do you remember what Iowa's pheasant harvest was in well, those years? You know, Bob, it was pretty good because in those years, southern Iowa – uh, was just coming on in 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 agriculture as far as row crop, mm-hmm. and the habitat kind of worked in southern Iowa. So in those early '80s, we were shooting a heck of birds in in southern Iowa. I'm sure easily it was a over a million. million. Right? Oh, yes, yes. I think that statistic was like I think there's been 20, 25 years in their history where they were shooting shooting the most birds in the country. I think weren't they? And I think it was number two yeah, for most years really close in the anyways. '80s and '90s. South Dakota would still be number one, but Iowa was normally number two. If I recall correctly. You know, it's kind of interesting because I don't focus on that. I, I focus on 2011 when we shot 150,000. Yeah, That's so the bottom fell out. Which is so close to, you know, we would have been, we would have become Northwest Ohio or mm. Michigan. When that pet population got so low that it takes so many years for it to grow back to where you can have the exponential growth where you can... Mm-hmm. where you can have a bunch of pheasants come back in a year or two. I mean, South Dakota's a good example. The, South Dakota took a good hit, but this year they really had a good bump up. You know, they still had enough birds there that when conditions were right, uh, they had an explosion in population and, you know, kind of came back at least a, a little bit. In Iowa, it's it's been a tough climb back from 2011 where we've had fairly good conditions. So I love thinking about the, the, the big years, but – Boy, I'll tell you, I, I was I was shook during 2011 because I never thought the state would get to that to that point. And for folks, you know, a lot of folks are going to know why, but there'll be listeners that don't know why the bottom fell out of Iowa. Give us a, mostly the recap. Mostly just bad weather conditions. I'm not saying that there wasn't other things involved. Habitat was involved. A lot of our CRP was getting old, very old. Uh, but but weather beat us down you know and growing up and and coming out of college in 1981 you know if you talk to anybody winter cover was not a concern in Iowa you know it was nesting cover that's what that's what mattered but over the years as our habitats become more fragmented and there's less travel and and ability to move around and and be safe for those birds um, winter habitats become incredibly critical Hmm. and we've had some winters that have been bad enough to hurt pheasant populations you know extended winters with with snowfall with snow cover and extended cold and we had a winter in there and i'm not going to remember the year i'm sorry 88 89 or where in my part in eastern iowa kind of northeastern iowa we had a hundred 180 inches of snow i mean it's unheard of hmm. and and some of those counties you know the, they they had gravel roads that were shot until until july trying to get stuff fixed well that killed everything you know um, you know, I heard deer and turkeys and pheasants and everything. And then we had some springs that were just, right. um, I used to get mad at our biologist, our good guy works hard. Todd Bogenschutz in Iowa works hard at it, but I'd get so mad cause he'd just come out with these terrible, <laughs> these terrible ideas, you know, that we're going to have a tough pop, uh, a tough, uh, season because, you know, temperatures and rain were so strong in April. And I'm like, well, let's wait till September to see what that is. Don't start predicting it now but he was right um we just you know we just didn't have favorable springs and we had some really tough winters out there and, and there was a lot of habitat loss too right yeah <clears throat> i mean there was yeah. a lot of conversion in the state of Iowa. yeah 
as a former as a former Iowan, and that's where I really got to know Mr. O'Connor over here when I started in in 2010, and we've become good friends since. Um, you know, I think one of the statistics they use, and it's on the DNR website, is they talk about a two-mile strip of habitat when they talk about CRP la- mm-hmm. loss or grassland loss. A two-mile strip of habitat that stretches all the way from Council Bluffs uh, to to Davenport, I believe. All the way across the I-80. Yeah, all you the, I mean, you, you think about that. And that just, that's how much habitat was lost over that 10-year uh, period. Yeah, right? it was it was just immense. And, and as a as a staffer that came in in, in 2010, I was kind of right in the middle of, I think it was between 2007 and 2012, somewhere right in there where they had, I think it was, you know, over 30 inches or over 32 inches of snow those five years that really set us that really set us back when you know Matt's talking about 2011 when we we're at the bottom of the barrel for for mm-hmm. pheasant counts. Um, you know that's when that's when I came in. If you compare that to now and, and the work that Pheasants Forever has done down down there through a seed program, which we'll we'll get into with Matt here in a little bit, um, to land acquisitions to other things like that. Um, and you know I, I go back this year and visit some of my chapters and pick up a dog and you know we're in a area of the state west central where you go down there and, you know, we shoot a 12-man limit by 3 o'clock, which hasn't been done there in, I don't know, a dozen, dozen years, long time. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of those types of stories you're hearing this year. Mm-hmm. So it, I, can't, I can't compare what the glory days, we hear that a lot. And I think, um, you know, Matt's used that term a lot in the past, the glory days of Iowa. Um, I, I have nothing to compare it to because I wasn't there then. Um, but they're, they're on their way back, which is, it's really nice to see. And, and anytime I talk with Matt on the phone during, uh, you know, during the hunting season, it's just nice to, to hear that enthusiasm back in his voice. Right. Like, man, we got birds back and it's a, it's a glorious thing. So, well, in, in, uh, in the Iowa forecast this year, Todd Bogan shoots, who you, you mentioned already, um, he said on the quail side, if you've ever thought about hunting quail in Iowa, you know, this is the year to come to Iowa and hunt quail. I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> that, that's so that's fact, consistent. Yeah. The last well, Iowa bro- <laughs> podcast we did, they, they, they don't want this secret out. Well, we did it. We had enough quail hunting when I was a, an, in high school. I had some friends that had really good dogs. And in, in northeast Iowa, down through Jones County and, and in through that area, there were some very nice quail hunting. I never thought. And then in the early 80s in southern Iowa, you know, beautiful mm-hmm. quail hunting. And, and it was gone. And I did not think that it was ever going to return. And that it's as good as – I've been on a couple of places. It's been as good as when I was in high school. Hmm. And, and that's hunting public lands and some walk-ins, not even knocking on doors and finding some private places. But I was, I've been amazed at what the department has done in some of their quail focus areas down in, Iowa, in southern Iowa. And just uh, as a whole, how that population bounced back is just uh, an incredible story. So we started, I started with the question about how you got involved and you talked about starting that and volunteering for that chapter. And then, then we went off on a tangent talking My about, bird. no, 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 which is fine. But I wanted to get back to, you know, you are one of the biggest personalities in this organization filled with uh, type A big personalities. Um, so, so you volunteered, you helped start that chapter. How'd you end up working here? And how, you know, actually, what's kept you 30 years? I actually was working for the uh, Iowa County Conservation Board System. Um, it's a great partner for us. And, and uh, I started talking to Jim Woolley. And uh, the job came open and I applied. Which and job? The job 
You know, really, that's kind of interesting. It was it was a regional rep or a regional biologist, but it was actually a habitat specialist. The idea was that we had these 90 chapters in Iowa, and Jim needed some help with, with habitat because, you know, he was starting the chapters, and we were raising money, but they wanted somebody out there. Well, you know, in about a week, I became a, 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 a regional biologist, but it was really started off as like a Iowa, northern Iowa habitat specialist. And you do have a biology degree. Yeah. Right. You're yeah. from. You went to Northland College in Ashland, Wisconsin. You right. Gotcha. Home of the lumberjacks, buddy. <laughs> Go lumberjacks. Go lumberjacks. And and uh, <laughs> arguably the biggest Green Bay Packers uh, fan within the organization. I love the pack. He's no got doubt. his. He's got his colors <laughs> on today. <laughs> um. So uh, you're how many employees in the organization you know, when you started? So Bob. I, I told you I was over with new employee orientation today, yep. and there's been so many stories going on about old pheasants forever stories that I kind of helped them out by not saying anything. Yeah. But it was pretty. I think it was eight people around the table when we first had our first staff meeting um, up across eight. from eight. Eight. Yeah. So that was a nice cozy, cozy <laughs> somebody's garage. Yep. Actually, it was in that building across from Jimmy's over there. That, <laughs> oh, on, on Labor Road. Yes, on yeah. Labor Road. Huh. You bet. And it was great. I had fifty-two chapters, and uh, you know, we we you know, I did the uh, the regional biologist thing, and we had a lot of habitat meetings at that time. You know, we were trying to we were trying to get we were trying to just send the right message out there to folks. You know, what's the best thing to do? And Northern Iowa, of course, you know, farmstead shelter belts was a was a great idea that some chapters bid on to, and 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 others didn't. But it it was a good way to put out a lot of habitat. Uh, CRP was there then, so you know that's when we really started into more native grass CRP and and just looking at diversity. So that was there and food plots, which is what this program is about. Um, you know, love which, them, yeah, love them, is- hate them, whatever you want to say about them. They're an integral integral part of our habitat picture, and uh, I always work to try to get our chapters to do the best possible thing that they could do when it comes to food plots because you can. You can screw them up pretty bad, and you can make great ones that can really have an impact on a population. Um, and so that's what I wanted to come and talk about today. So right before we get into kind of the anatomy of food plots, um, you know, you are, you know, if we categorize the different types of folks that are involved in the organization, they're, they're, you know, f- they're people that are just bird dog crazy, you know, hunting, you know, really excited about hunting they're gear junkies they're foodies you'd be in the bucket of you're kind of a um a habitat um champion right the habitat is what gets you really excited um now now you you hunt a bird, right a bird dog pointing and three roosters getting up in front of me would probably get me even a little more excited but <laughs> yeah, you run you run wire hairs right yes and, and i'm just thinking because last week i was hunting around with a buddy who was a who's a conservation nut too, you know, and uh-huh. we've had people leave our party because all we talk about is the plants and prairie that we're seeing while we're walking right. rather than, you know, more interesting things oh, to rattle, them. Rattlesnake master, <laughs> rooster, take him. Yes, we did. We stopped even taking pictures of the dang stuff last week, so I don't <laughs> know. We'll get into it. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Um, so today your job is very exclusively focused on that habitat mission as the leader of our Habitat Forever LLC, right? Yes. So, so yes. what does that mean to folks that are familiar with pheasants forever? They're familiar with quail forever, but like, habitat forever. What's that? I know the easiest thing that I use to to kind of um, not so much describe it, but to uh, 
to be able to say why we're here is that we're an organization that tells the story very well. We present it to landowners and we, and we can sell those programs very well and we push habitat. It's important that we have kind of a wing that does it. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a group of folks that really understand how to implement all those habitat programs. And whether it's habitat specialists in Pennsylvania working on stream, trout stream restoration or uh, goldwing warbler restoration in the, in the hills of Pennsylvania, or it's a team in central or northern Minnesota working on planting, you know, high-diversity prairie mixes back into either newly acquired public lands or on CRP, or mm-hmm. in Iowa where we did pollinators, you know, thousands of acres of pollinators just through our habitat specials the last few years. You know, we've got that expertise in that section too. I think it's important to, you know, to kind of understand the whole the whole picture when it comes to uh, building habitat, and and we do a good job with that. I'm, you know, some of our states are. Uh, where we contract with states to do work on public ground, been a great partnership with so some of those, some of those states, uh, Montana, Kansas, yep. South Dakota, where the state hires us, and then and our habitat specialists do the do the work. So in in Montana, it's probably most diverse because three different areas, and each one kind of have a little bit different job, but mostly restoring upland habitat to to make it good nesting habitat, but also doing the other food plots and and uh, shelter belt plantings that they might that they might be doing in those different states uh, along the Yellowstone River Pompey's Pillar we just were talking about it an hour ago and and uh, Yellowstone Wildlife Management Area and then a big area a new area down along the Bighorn River we just um, you know we do food plots and and try to restore the habitat and do the best we can in that area our goal is because of that big population of billings just giving them upland habitat opportunities to go upland hunting opportunities mm-hmm. to go to to montana's biggest city that's kind of what we're why we're doing what we're doing there and maybe can you get into the specifics of those positions maybe just a little bit so like kansas i believe that they are targeted at specific wildlife areas south dakota um they're working uh is it walking well, property different. there or is it just different everywhere jared it's different every year everywhere but it's kind of how the agency runs their management program okay. so in in kansas a lot of their wildlife management units are right there associated with with uh large impoundments la- large lakes yep and and they'll be working on ground around those lakes or maybe a few satellite areas so it's primarily public ground public areas in kansas now we just hired three new habitat specialists in kansas that are private lands they're working on the walk-in areas or usda easements in parts of the state and we've actually got one that's doing some unique work down in southwest kansas uh that's uh working on playa lake projects and just playa lake projects that are starting to degrade whether trees are coming in or Mm -hmm. they're not really being managed as playa, playa lakes which I'm not even sure what the heck a playa lake is, other than it's a shallow, <laughs> shallow water lake down in that part of the. Right. Yeah. So in and Iowa, we just farm through it. I mean, I don't know what the hell. You know. And we do have, um, and, and you mentioned this, but just to circle back, kind of um, habitat specialist for hire within certain geographies. So Josh in <clears throat> west west central Minnesota, if you want to do a prescribed burn or a pollinator planting, uh, and you own some property, then you can contact Habitat Forever, and if you're in a geography that fits 
uh, our, our folks can come out, bring the tractor, bring the seed, bring the chemicals, and do a project. Yeah, and I don't want to disappoint people. I mean, we can only travel so far, to, you know, mm-hmm. to make it worth their while. But, yeah, Josh Peterson in, in Minnesota along with Brad Mullen. Um, Josh is actually building up to a, a stage where he's – we might even hire another habitat specialist to work for him kind of uh, because he's got so much work going on. In Iowa, we've got – Derek Schwarting and David Ryder. David Ryder up in northeast Iowa and Derek down in eastern and southeastern Iowa. Um, yeah, Vernon has been a big part of their of their work uh, because that, you know, when I tell people or I try to sell that program, I say, look, at, you hire our habitat team and you come out and watch that burn. Two things will happen. One is you'll see that how it works, the equipment that's needed, and maybe you can come up with that stuff and you've got enough family where the next time you see, need to burn it, you, you know, you've seen it once professionally and you can do it yourself. Or you're going to say, I never have to worry about the fire here again. I got these guys that I can call anytime mm-hmm. and count on them and I'm going to sleep better the rest of the, you know, from now on. So that's been an important part of it. But we do a lot of planning and, and not as much food plot work as you might think because it just comes in and, and kind of happens at the same time when we're burning and then moving right into planting. But um, usually our food plots come out with a landowner who's trying, who's hiring us for everything, and we're there, so we'll we'll go plant a food plot for them also. So <clears throat> we've teased it a couple times, so we're going to go right for the A topic now, which is food plots and kind of the the impetus for your contacting me a couple weeks ago is you know let's do a podcast about food plots because. There's a lot of mythology around food plots. It's, you know, food plots back in the day, you know, maybe the late 80s, early 90s, it was the bread and butter of pheasants forever. And then, you know, we, 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 we figured out it's important, but nesting cover and then shelter is sort of the limiting factors. Mm-hmm. But then there's been, um, uh, you know, some momentum back to, you know, it is the recipe of all of those components. So let's, mm-hmm. let's start there. Talk. You're a biologist. You've been working for 30 years. What is the right recipe, and where do where do food plots fit into the habitat mix? One thing that I've never changed on, and that I, I'm positive or learned early on, and and still agree with, is they've got to be big. And big isn't two acres, and big isn't three acres. Big is five acres, and ten acres is better. And maybe in parts of South Dakota where the wind's whipping and a lot of snowfall, you know, hell, 20 acres might be what's important. Um, and the reason for that is is what we're really trying to do out there. The, the idea is not just to provide a place for us to go shoot birds. Uh, it's a place for us to chase birds. Mm-hmm. You know, the real some of the real recreation is this, is, is, is not just shooting them, but chasing them. And, and, you, and, and the other thing is, is that we're trying to build a healthy population around that nesting cover. Now, You'll sit down with a bunch of biologists and grapes all night long. We'll go back and forth about whether that, how important that is or whether it's there or not. Um, the, but the one thing that I see as we go into the late, you know, teens of the tw- you know, 2000 mm-hmm. is that things have changed out there on the land dramatically since, since 20, 2012, 2014. Um, tillage is, again, a, a big thing in the fall. Um, our, our harvesting equipment is so much more efficient than it ever was that this story about, um, about waste grain out there in those old fields, it's just not there. It's not there at all. I'm sh- you know, unfortunately, I don't know how much of the research has been done, but if we could walk through those fields in the 60s 
and then come back and look now. I mean, it's, there's not any comparison at all as to the amount of waste grain. So that availability that we were so concerned mm-hmm. about, keeping pheasants within a half a mile of that stuff, I don't, I don't buy it anymore. I hmm. think you've got to put something better in there. And if it was me, um, or, if, or if I've got the, the chance, it's going to be a five-acre corn food plot um, that has got to the north and west of it maybe something that might stop some wind or, or fill in some snow or put some snow in before it necessarily gets to the food plot. Or the food plot itself can become that windbreak. But you're trying to keep as much of it as possible open so for, you're, for the wildlife. you're describing really valuable information here. But let's start with, okay, so um, what's the perfect acre number for you're going to buy a piece of property matt o'connor for your own little pheasant heaven because you've already put say you know five acre food plot with some winter cover to the northwest to grab some snow so you've got this in your mind already so what what's the are, are we talking 100 acres or is that so, not big enough so no i'm gonna dream right you know i just bought two, <laughs> 220 acres 220 acres that's kind of nice your yes. that's what you need to start the pheasant recipe. That's what, you know, we got to start somewhere. Yep. That's a good 220. one to start. Okay. All right. So a little bit over a quarter section. And then what I would do is I'd look for a south aspect, not necessarily a south hillside, but something that had more of a southerly aspect to it. And I'd put that 10 acres of food plot, um, hope, you know, let's just say the north end. And on that north end, there happens to be a shrub fence row running east and west on that north on that north wind end, and that's maybe within 200 yards of the food plot or so, and that's stopping some snow there. And we'll also know that those first 15 rows of that food plot are gonna are gonna stop snow too. But it's 10 acres, mm-hmm. and it's there for probably two years. You know, that'd be my perfect. You know, I'm, we're we're yeah, setting up dream the big, thing. baby. And and then perhaps on the southern edge of that 200, and you get you know, who knows what kind of waterways might be going through mm-hmm. there, what the drainage might be. But maybe on the south edge, I'd have a, ten, a five acre. Um, maybe a maybe it's a sorghum food plot or, or another ten, ten, uh, five acres of corn. Who knows? Okay. But that, so you, that you, would I'd probably some big acres that you're not talking about, and it, it, that's nesting. I'm that's assuming. nesting, absolutely. That's and everything else. Nesting, brooding. What's the um, what's the acre breakdown between those? You know, pollinator. Do you intermix it all, or do you have? Well, you know, if we're talking you know, perfect situation. Mm-hmm. Um, Iowa's got a program through CRP called pheasant restoration. And what we use is a, is a fairly diverse mix over most of it. And what I mean by diverse is maybe 18, 20 forbs and, and 10 grasses, something like that. But along with that, I'd probably put some pollinator in specific areas uh, because it is absolutely the greatest thing we've ever done for pheasants that, that, we can go. That's a whole other podcast. Right? Mm-hmm. So we'd have some some five or ten acre uh, pollinator sites in there. But what we'd also have is, if, you know, I got two hundred twenty acres. I'd probably have, you know, twenty to forty acres of uh, of good winter habitat of switchgrass. Hmm. Um, not necessarily the old cave and rock or those switchgrasses where you know you got to have you, you run into them with your gun, put your head down, and bounce back out of them. I'm talking, <laughs> you know, stuff that might be. <laughs> Locally sourced seed, and it's a yeah. you know an Iowa ecotype like switchgrass. It's and planted at a relatively low level at maybe four pounds per acre that you can move through. I I always joked when we used to have those those jungles out there mm-hmm. of of switchgrass. You'd walk and you wouldn't be able to move your feet, and you'd kind of 
crawl on your knees or you'd walk mm. and all of a sudden you'd hit a spot where you could walk that's when you'd get the gun up and be ready because that's where the pheasants would come mm-hmm. up you know they they weren't moving through that thick stuff any better than than we were but um you know there's good switchgrass out there that's a little not quite as aggressive or not quite as uh you know the structure of it isn't so big and you can so a couple questions for you if if you've got say cattails uh, already in this 220 acres do you do you have is the box already checked for winter cover? Not, not necessarily. It's going to be the size. You okay. know, if you got to have some pretty decent size. You know, you can't have a little three acre pothole uh, full of cattails and count on that because we're not talking about ninety percent of the winners. Mm-hmm. We're talking about that ten percent of the winners that are gonna that are gonna be you know miserable and can really affect the population. So again, that ten acre food plot, nine out of ten years, you know is. <laughs> It's not going to do, you know, we have recent years that change mm-hmm. this. But primarily, 9 out of 10 years, that's not doing, I mean, it's providing good, great feed. Your your hen population's coming out. All your pheasant population's coming out well-fed and very healthy going into the spring. But it's not the make, make or break. Mm-hmm. That one year out of 10 where you have a winter that runs right in through the mid-March and you've got deep snow, that's going to make or break your pheasant population. And, that, and that's sort of the, that's sort of the, ultimate goal if you will right or one of the goals is that we're focusing on hen pheasants and getting them through the winter in good enough shape they have some fat on them so that they can initiate nesting right away in the spring is that that's generally it you know i went and looked at some literature out of south dakota and and you know there is data out there that shows that those food plots um, not enough research has been done but but uh, those food plots do provide a more healthy population coming into the in the spring than places without that. In a healthier hen, it's going to produce more eggs. Yeah, or mo- bo- produce more eggs or last longer. You know, as, as hens re-nest, mm-hmm. if they do have to re-nest, the, that le- egg count goes down. If we've got a healthier hen, you know, maybe we end up with a few more eggs in those second attempts mm-hmm. or third attempts. In your dream little 220 acres, you know, you talked about it for pheasants. Is it different if your goal is quail and is it different if your goal is both so quail i could give you the simple answer is that we'd want more dirt and i more I joke, dirt as in being able to move around yeah and and, and you know like disc areas and that are going to turn to annual weeds but i often joke with some of the folks that have done some of the most recent research on quail and i and and that's as it relates to habitat and it really shows that Dirt makes a difference, you know. Think of that 220 for pheasants. It's going to be primarily native grasses. Um, there's going to be a few food plots, uh, but it's, a lot of it is more permanent habitat. Our winter habitat's important. It's thick old switchgrass. If it was quail, I'd really work to get more bunch grasses out there. Probably more of like a little blue stem type prairie with a with more forbs, and I'd provide more dirt. I think I would disc. You know, I'd, I'd come up with some disc areas that that maybe i'd you know maybe after that 10 acre food plot was finally done after two years i'd go in and disc it up and then i i always talk about blocks of food plots you know you can get me to change a little bit when it comes to quail because of the dirt that it's providing and and i can see a food plot becoming a little more linear Hmm. in quail company as soon as that thing becomes more linear though it becomes more of a predator trap and uh you know that's that's the thing. But but the simple answer is dirt, really. Hmm. Turn it over, and those quail like that stuff. 
you know, <clears throat> I mentioned a couple of times, you know, it's mid-January and that was the, the catalyst for your call. Right now is the time to be thinking about your spring planting. Why, why is that? I mean, we're, for, we're a long ways from, from uh, turning the dirt anywhere. Yeah, it is. But, but it's time to start thinking about it and start planning. Okay. You know, whether you're, if you're a farmer and, you know, everything else that you, your, your life depends upon mm-hmm. is happening in the spring. Uh, if you're a, uh, a, just a landowner, um, you know, you've got another job, maybe in a different area, getting to that land's not as easy. So if you wait till the last minute on any of this stuff, you know, it just gets stacked up in front of you and then you do a food plot that's not what it should be and you, you know, you, you, you cut some corners and then you end up with a lousy food plot and, you know, you got another year where you go, God, I wish I would have done that better, you know, and, <laughs> you know it's just, and that's what we all go through. I mean, I'm, I'm doing it right now and this is kind of why I'm excited about it because I've been planting food plots the last few years and I'm, you know, just helping out some folks and, and getting back into it and, uh, um, you got to, you do them right and, uh, it's a lot better situation in the fall. <laughs> Uh, all right, so, so, so let's talk about doing it right. Yeah, uh, let's, let's, yeah your checklist. Uh, what's what's well, the think, top thing? You, I'm assuming the top thing on your checklist is identifying what the goal of your food plot is. Well, you know, location, location, location. We okay. talked about that a little bit. And, you know, depending on your land, you might not be able to get the perfect location, but I like a southern aspect. I like to have something that's stopping snow before that food plot, not big trees, but something like a shelter belt or, I mean, uh, something like a, uh, a, sh- a fence row that might have shrubs on it, mm-hmm. or you can either turn that fi- that snow catch, you know, with corn. You could plant six rows of corn out a little bit farther, and then and then go twenty feet or thirty feet or whatever, and then start your food plot. But anyhow, something that might catch some snow, so it's not all in the food plot. Not big trees. Why? Yeah, not big trees. Why? Just, well, because of pre- avian predators. Right. And and um, I had a we we bought a new piece of ground once down in northeast Iowa, uh, the county that I work for. Kind of had the opportunity to put a big, nice, big food plot on it the first year because then we were going to plant it to something else. And uh, that was next to the Cedar River, a bunch of big uh, cottonwood trees right there next to it. And um, you often hear about the effects of avian predation. Mm-hmm. Well, I got to see it really good that mm-hmm. winter. We had a lot of pheasants in the area, and, and they just uh, – well, you could go through and, and find a carcass every day really? where they were knocking the hell off. So them. you've talked a couple times about having, you know, a snow catch, <clears throat> whether that's a shelter belt or corn on the north side where the wind's going to blow the mm-hmm. snow in. I've always, I always remember, you know, biologists talking about put the, um, the kitchen net next to the bedroom. And not just, you know, winter cover for a snow catch perspective, but for thermal you know, for you know, when it when the times are tough, that's where they're going to spend their time, and you want the food plot next to that winter cover, so the distance to move back and forth is yeah. really minimal. Yeah, next to the switchgrass would be great, but I th- I'm thinking on a 220 acre place, you're pretty much close enough wherever wherever you're going to go. But you're right, if you if you can put that winter cover right up close to that food plot, so they could walk out of that and into the food plot, thermal cover, harder, you know. If you think about it as a hunter, that'd be a hard dang place to hunt. You know, mm-hmm. birds could go anywhere. Well, I love that when it's a hard place to hunt because that means it's a hard place for a dang coyote or fox or whatever. Mm-hmm. Maybe. So if it's hard for you to hunt, it's hard for everything else and make it that way. So it, people that view food plots in a 
negative sense, they call them killing strips, right? Uh, All a food plot is is a killing strip. I got a great picture, Bob, a great picture in northern Iowa, 30 rows of food plots. There's a fence actually on the east side of this food plot, and uh, you look down, and I don't know if it goes for a quarter mile, but it goes for a long ways, and it's filled with snow right up to the top of the tassels. You know, you can see bits and pieces of tassels sticking up. So I'd always say the story will you know, this is a food plot Bob and Tom put it in last year, and they had a blast. They shot 16 roosters out of this dang thing during pheasant season. What they forgot about is that in late January, they killed another dozen roosters and 20 hens in the dang thing because of what it turned into. Mm. It was just a death trap for Because it was bird. linear. It didn't catch the snow, and it just filled up, and the birds got buried. Yeah. 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 So, you know, they're fun, and they're, again. It's a good it's, example. Well, it's. it's Think about it. It would have been a great one to hunt. Easy to hunt. Not a good food plot. No. Hmm. All right, you so know, in South Dakota, you see it all the time now. You know, linear, mm-hmm. linear food plots for, for easy hunting. Well, you know, luckily the state sticks with blocks and big blocks. So we're good there. Uh, so is, um, I, I was in Kansas, and it, the food plot there was kind of like a river, right? Like it meandered. Uh-huh. Does that have a similar benefit, or is it more, you know, that's still linear? It maybe isn't a straight line, but the coyote can get in there and just follow the same path. Yeah, you, you know, you can say that, too, and, and there's no doubt that that happens. You know, you got to question just how much it really affects pheasants. Kansas, not as much snow. Mm-hmm. You know, we know that those, those predators are more effective on those birds when we do have uh, five or six inches of snow, and it's there for a while, mm-hmm. especially fox have a have a better opportunity um, on that. But, you know, the thing is, is that we're, we're kind of dwelling too much on predation all of a sudden, mm-hmm. which is not that, you know, they're out there trying to make a living just like we are. And it's not the big impact that everybody freaks out about. And, you know, we move on to good habitat, and that's what we'll take. That'll take care of us. All right. Tell us about good habitat, good well, food plots. So we talked about a good place of where it needed to be. And then, and then the planning, you know. God, go out as from Habitat Forever, where I work with a lot of landowners and go out and walk with them. Nobody knows what an acre is. <laughs> I mean, I'll go out and say, I got three and a half acre food plot I need you to put in, you know, and you walk out and it's an acre and a quarter. You know, it's it, it, you got to get that acreage right um, simply because everything else can go bad because of that. You know, whether it's too much or not enough fertilizer on it. But the biggest thing, and we're going to talk about it again, but since I got the Mm -hmm. moment, the biggest problem is, the biggest problem with food plots is planting them too thick. You know, your rate of seed is way too high of what it needs to be. And a lot of that is we bid a bag of seed, you know, and I'm going to, I promote our seed program, but our seed program generally has seed bagged in, you know, four to five acres. Mm -hmm. And then when it's a two acre food plot, they go, well, I'll just put it all out there. You, know? <laughs> <laughs> you end up with some nice. That's never happened in my garden. Before. I always, <laughs> I always say, if you look at your little finger and that sorghum, that sorghum plant is, you know, the sorghum stalk is not much thicker than your little finger. You're in big trouble. Mm. That's that's wrong. Planted too thick. Should be just like a corn. Yeah, it should be as thick as your darn wrist. 
you know, and so that's that's the biggest problem out there. And so knowing the acreage and stepping it off and knowing for sure what you've got for acreage. Well, so that, a lot that's that. probably um, a naive question, but how do you go about sizing um, what that acre by acre Just, is? You know, you know, if, if you happen to have a wheel, that's great, but step it mm-hmm. off, you know, mm-hmm. and step it off with, by a yard. My dad used to be a f- official, so when I was a little kid, I'd always follow him and try to figure out how to get my step to be a yard mm. so I could walk off 10 yards on the football field or something. But, so I, I don't know. I, well, I always think of it that way well, and then just turn it into acres. One thing that I actually did this year was use we, – we've got – and this I'm just throwing this in there. We've got Onyx, Onyx Maps, right. who's a national sponsor, and they've actually got a, a, a line distance measure on there where you can actually measure – Measure the distance of. Do they really? Yeah, where you're walking, or you can measure the distance yeah. of a particular field. Hmm. So, what about soil? Do you have to do a soil test to know what you're going to plant, or is that overkill? You know, it's important, and the thing is, is with a soil test, it doesn't take a lot, but realize what you're going to get out of it. You're going to find out whether you need any P or K, you know, or if what the pH is. Mm-hmm. The whole nitrogen thing. Uh, the soil test isn't going to do much for you there because you can get, you know, you might have some grass there and you go and plow this thing up and get rid of the grass and then we have a three-inch rain, hell, the nitrogen's gone. You know, a lot of it's gone. Mm. So you're always going to be putting nitrogen on, but the, 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 uh, the, the soil test is good for pH, whether you got to put lime on it. Okay. There's nothing wrong. You, a lot of people completely ignore that, and it's probably – one of the most important things out there. Hmm. Any other one is just your P and K, okay. which is, which is you know usually you've got plenty in your soil, but at least at the start, the first time you're doing it, um, but, but you know but that's depleted as well. So you, we've got your uh, 220 acre plot. <clears throat> you know you've got you talked about having two food plots. Mm-hmm. What are you going to plant? What what are your food plots? So gonna you know be? mine's corn is king. I, I, my big one's going to be corn. The big reason for corn is that it's a hot food, and in the worst parts of winter, that's what those birds need is a good hot food. What do you mean hot food? Meaning it just it it it's got an, enough it's got enough carbs, carbs and caloric and, caloric intake. Yeah, caloric value. Yeah, it's better than than sorghum. Hmm. You know, and uh, you know sunflowers aren't too bad, but they don't stick around long. You know, they just they disappear. Birds eat them too early in the spring and. Or in the fall, and, and, and they're gone. But corn is corn does. But the other big thing with corn is if you don't have a deer problem, or if your deer problem is a minimum, and there's always going to be deer in the Midwest, but you know if it happens to be at a minimum, you can leave that field for two years. And the second year, it's a better darn field. It might only have a third of the corn hmm. that that a you know a, a regular field might have, but that's plenty. And uh, the weeds that come up, the it becomes a better nesting habitat, and it becomes cheaper to you because these things do cost some money to put in, and spreading it out over two years is a is a darn good idea to do. So you get those secondary benefits then in in year two. You nesting bet. habitat probably pretty good brooding habitat with oh, all. Oh yeah, I think about that. Yeah, yep, absolutely. All the weeds coming up and yep. soft-bodied insects. So you mentioned sorghum, and I like. <coughs> I would prefer sorghum because yeah, right? it, it's easier to hunt. You can see, and it seems like you find uh, in quail country what he just said: it's easier to hunt. Yeah, well, <laughs> you can see hunt, you bad can, food plot. You can see your dog, <laughs> right? And then uh, it seems like uh, there's you find quail around sorghum more than you do uh, um, yeah, quail around corn. I think the second year corn, I think you'd be surprised if you were down in quail country the difference that that would be. You're right. Huh. 
Um, so sorghum's fantastic. You know, it provides it provides cover as well as food. Um, the other nice thing is that it's got a different date of planting. You know, if you start off all hot and ready for corn and then it rains or you've got business things, you've got work to do, well, we in in the upper Midwest, we're generally planting corn in the first part of May and we plant our sorghum at the end of May. What that's nice about is if you're thinking about habitat, that gives you, your window isn't two weeks, your window is a month and a half mm. to get stuff done, which is always a good thing to have. So you can work them hand in hand. I'm just saying that if we, if I got an hour and a half on a podcast, <laughs> I'm going to start and say corn, <laughs> corn is first and then go to sorghum. Uh-huh. And in, in my situation where I'm doing food plots, I actually start off early and do sunflowers first before May 1st. Huh. Do my corn the first week or two of May, and then the sorghum comes in later. So on your 220 acres, you have two food plots. Are you planting multiple species, or are you going corn? Take the business aspect, the timing out of it. This is your dream property. Yeah. What are you planting on your dream property? I'm I'm planting corn on the north end and the 10-acre one, and I'm planting sorghum on the the 5-acre one. Okay. Absolutely. Now— that's that's my dream one. Yeah. You want me to go to ones that, you know, the secret behind our our food plot seed is that Jim Woolley and I used to talk about it back in, in the early 90s. That people were getting bored with planting food plots. Or they, you know, they were putting them in and putting them in. It's the same thing every year. And it seemed like they were getting bored. And so we started coming up with some darn mixes. And yeah. They're interesting. Blizzard Buster, oh, Rooster Booster, yeah, Cubby yeah. Rise. Yeah. I mean, there's some good st- – I mean, yeah. and there's a lot of mixtures yeah. in it. And Blizzard Buster is the one – I think Blizzard Buster is the one that's got about six grain sorghums and then six yep. forage sorghums. Yep. The it's guys a monster. just love those dang things. Mm-hmm. You know, they're cool as heck looking. And, and the thing is, you can plant them the same as you do any other time of sorghum. I try to plant them as early as possible only because – and I don't mean like first of May, as early as I can in that sorghum planting once the soil is warmed mm. up. Because that, that large cane sorghum or forage sorghum that's in there, you know, needs to harden off before the first frost. I mean, it needs to get mature. If it happens, if you happen to get that in late and it's still green and we get a good hard frost, it just lays down and kind of screw up the whole lot. But if it's, if it's good and it's dried out and it's, and, it, and it's a mature plant, oh my gosh, that stuff is fantastic. I just had a guy call me. Last week, uh, Blackhawk County just ranting and raving about how much he loves his blizzard buster. <laughs> we've got a uh, we do a media hunt in South Dakota every year, and we've talked about Eric Johansson, mm-hmm. jo- Johansson Farms uh, outfitters on the on this show before, and um, you know he's he's kind of taken his own variety of of mixes of sorghum that you know he gets from the co-op and stuff. Um, and he's put him he's put him against ours, and and he's extremely happy. You're talking about a guy that manages for wildlife big time i'm talking five thousand acres um where his you know his dream there is reality um and you know just talks about the need the need for them when they do have those bad winters they're there they they plan plan for the worst and hope for the best which Mm -hmm. i think is what a lot of people do with food plots but again just another guy that you know has come and said man Hmm. those seed mixes you guys are putting out there they're quality and and that's what we strive for and and uh, I think, you know, whether it's Jim, Jim Woolley, who I would call dinosaur, dinosaur <laughs> number one, and maybe your number two, Matt, mm-hmm. um, you know, they've, they've put together some quality seed mixes uh, on the landscape, which is, which is awesome. 
we haven't even got to all of this, but you know, the, there's a time when you got to look at cost on this stuff. Mm-hmm. And I've been talking about how two-year food plots can cut your costs in half. But you know, um, we're going to get to things like um, you know, her, uh, fertilizer and what we're got to put down, and also herbicide. And well, let, let's of it. let's go there right now. So you've identified what you want to plant. You know where you want to plant it. What's the next step? Well, I think um, you know prepping the site first. Now, right. I like to I like to use tillage, especially if it's coming out of CRP, and just for one year for tillage to get to kind of get the thing worked up. My point that I make is that I work towards no till, but I want to make sure that I that the first year I'm probably going to till that thing, just because the the how much you know your equipment. If mm-hmm. to try to go in there and no till, when you know you've seen bean farmers go into CRP and not have the the crops that they may have hoped they were going to have. I mean, it's a tough do situation. You, you could, you're going to get there. Did you burn it? Do you burn the I'm, site I, before? I, I usually mow it, but you can burn it too. Mow it, and do you treat it with chemical, or you just mow it and then till it and then plant? So with tillage, it's usually two tillages. You know, you go in and you work the ground up, kind of expose the roots, give it two weeks rest, and go in and do it again. Okay. I don't usually spray until I let that, if I decide, if it's early enough, and it has an opportunity to green up, then I might spray. But most of the time I'm using Roundup Ready corn. And so um, whether we, we do some kind of finish to that soil or, or cull to pack it or anything, we'll go in and seed seed, and, and then wait for that first flush of green and then, and then hit it with Roundup. Hmm. So, you know, it kind of depends on your spring. If you've got time, you might be able to spray it once before. But if you don't have time, you know, you get the thing planted and, and then go in and, and spray when you need to. Okay. I think that um, – And do you treat it with that, fertilizer? Before that, before that herbicide treatment, it's, it's herbicide. Now, the big thing with herbicide is go to your co-op and talk to them. They're probably not going to give a hoot about you because you're here in there to, <laughs> to, get, <laughs> to, get, to get herbs or fertilizer for, you know, your five-acre mm-hmm. dang food plot. They'd rather see two zeros after it, you know, before they give you much respect. But uh, it is important to put nitrogen, and, and depending on your soil test, whether you need to put some P and K on that stuff uh, is pretty important too, or even, even uh, um, lime. Mm-hmm. So nitrogen, though, is the important part. I tell people what you need to understand is that, and I just, just talked this morning to my, my best darn agronomist in northeast Iowa, um, always making pioneer hybrids proud up there and my buddy up in northeast Iowa. Uh, he, I said, clear up something for me because I, I never could understand the difference between units of nitrogen and pounds of nitrogen. So if you go in and ask you what, that you want 100 pounds of nitrogen put on there, what they're going to do is put 100 pounds of dry urea on your, on your food plot which means you only got about, that's 46% worth of nitrogen. So you got about 40, 46 pounds of nitrogen put on your area, which probably isn't enough. Mm. You want to use the term units. Units, if you order 100 units of nitrogen, you'll get 100 units of nitrogen on it. Mm. I generally don't put that much on. I put about 80 on every, on every food pod, 80 units of, of nitrogen. And they're always, and it depends on, you know, what you have available, but a lot of times there's buggies around, even in places where we have, you know, huge, big farms, uh, those co-ops still have some buggies, which is just a, a little 
wagon that that's got yeah uh, the, when with the wheels turning you can you can spew that when, when you say 80 units uh, how many acres are we talking about 80 units an acre 80 units an acre got yeah. it okay <clears throat> huh and then i'll a lot of times i'll say and, and just put half half a rate of p and k with that and i'll put that on a potassium is kind of important for for um you know uh, for it just to grow and get started and uh it, you know it's worth putting that on there uh, all right. So you you are you planting this? You, do you need to drill to plant your food plot? I generally now I use a corn planter. I've even used tr- from Truex drills to just about everything in the world. Corn's got to get kind of deep. You need to get that thing down almost two inches to really get a good plant started. And so a planter, a regular corn planter, works well. Once once you've got your seed in the ground. Um, you just let it grow, or do you have to, you know, do you have to get moisture in there? Or you just hope that it rains. What, how much care to a food plot over the course of uh, from planting to maturation? You know, there's not a lot, but you know, you do have to kind of count on rain. But that's, you know, we're in eastern Iowa or southern Minnesota. Cripes, we got hell. We got more rain than we need for goodness sakes. These last few years. That usually is not a very big problem. Mm-hmm. Are birds going to nest in your food plot? Not in not in the first year. Okay. I mean, yeah, year two, year three, is it going to yeah, be used for that year, purpose? Second year, there's been a lot of data out there that you get some annual weeds in there, and they'll, it's surprising the amount of nesting. So you after you those. go to kind of a no-till, um, then, then well, you're not disturbing it? Or I'm take s- me to ne- I was talking two. year two where the corn was still sitting there for okay. a second year. Okay. Now, in no-till, you know, we, there's been some good research on no-till, um, no-till plantings and, and how, it, uh, how it affects nesting. And they're not very positive. But the other thing is they were done a long time ago when no-till was just really coming on. If you look, go around the country, landowners have become much more, uh, you know, they understand no-till. They understand when they're, you know, when to spray and they trust it more. So where you used to see a little bit of green in those soybean fields, man, they'd be out and nuke that dang thing the next day. Hmm. Where now you can see where it's so green you can't hardly even see the young um, soybean plants, and they understand that, and they're not worried about it, and then they'll go out and spray, and everything dies and everything's okay. Well, in that period of time, that you know, there could be more birds beginning, you know, with more cover in that field, there could be more nesting attempts in there. Uh, you you planted Jared. Uh, you planted a food plot. Um, I don't know if it was the first time, but you planted a pretty good food plot this past year. What? Yeah, I guess what uh, what is your bit of advice for folks that are considering this for the first time? That you're like, hey, you know, don't forget to do that. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I you know a lot of the points that Matt is covering here are stuff that um, I, I did a lot of research on, and I really encourage people if if you're going to go out and do a food plot. Um, use the Pheasants Forever website, talk to private lands biologists, talk to Pheasants Forever biologists to help you try to try to design those um, to the best best of your ability um, so they don't sell yourself short. So we talked about, you know, not doing linear, making them more block. Um, you know, sometimes I've only got I've only got a 10 acre property. Uh, so my food plot is only so big because I like to leave I like to leave nesting cover there as well. But for me, it was a lot of trial and error. Um, 
I don't have, I've got neighbors. They're great. They're great. They're dairy farmers. Um, they leave food plots on their property. Um, they live really nice, big fence rows. Um, I, I've tried to, I've kind of tried to do a lot of different things and, and Matt, this will probably get us into some other things about, you know, what, what else can you plant in a food plot? Um, you know, some of those cover crops, I think we'll maybe get into that a little bit, but you know, the, I think the first year I, I started out, I, I was using our rooster booster mix and that has a lot of millets, a lot of buckwheat. Uh, and I combine that, um, with basically a lot of forbs in my property, a lot of flowering plants. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, uh, you know, being up there and experiencing that, I, I would just spend a lot of time out there and you, you guys would always, you always give me a hard time when I come to work every day. Cause every other day I'd be talking about this food plot and what I'm seeing up there, you know, and, and for like a, a rooster booster mix, it has a lot of that stuff in it. You're talking a lot of flowering plants, buckwheat, especially, I mean, you go up there and that thing is just absolutely buzzing with life. Mm. No pun intended. I mean, just a lot of, a lot of insects. Right. Um, so that, that first year that I did rooster booster, um, you know, after all that came to fruition and you get into like July, early August, I was seeing broods in there. They're in there chasing grasshoppers around, chasing other stuff around. And I had to learn a lot through trial and error. Um, you know, not putting it on too thick, uh, was something that I had problems with, um, planting be- too thick with the se- number of seeds. Yep. Yeah. Yep. At the beginning. So, um, I've kind of built up my habitat arsenal a little bit where, um, and maybe Matt, maybe you can talk about it a little bit, you know, as far as equi- equipment goes, um, I would either, I would either rent a tiller, uh, and really till, till the thing up myself. Um, other that, uh, I've got, I've got a four wheeler now I've got a nice spreader on the back, kind of a variable, variable spreader. So I can set it to, uh, you know, drop the right amount of seed, uh, on the landscape. Um, as far as water goes, like you said, that's really not an issue around here in Minnesota, um, where we're located. Um, but I've also found too, through trial and error that if you, you know, do not do a good job with weed control, you can really screw up a food plot from the very, from, from the get go. Um, and and that's, I, the only thing I'd say about that is you need to control weeds to start with. You got to get that mm-hmm. food plot started. Mm-hmm. There's nothing wrong with a bunch of weeds in a food plot. If, if, if you can get that first month being weed free, mm-hmm. you know, usually if I'm using roundup ready stuff, I usually one application roundup after you know after green up or after after it sprouts and I'm I'm pretty much good and I yep. I try to get a few weeds and you're right though but if you if you lose it from the beginning you know which a lot of those mixed up you know with all the different seed you can't hardly use anything on them yep early if you got to get it done before you plant them or you're you're going to be in trouble but. Uh, if you're walking around all that food plot, you're probably kicking all those dang hens off a nest too. <laughs> yeah, that was that was part of the problem the first year. But you know, I'd 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 walk I'd I'd walk out there. Um, I'm really um, I'm really anal about like leaving the dog inside. I don't bring them out there during the nesting season. I try to keep them close to the house. I always have the collar on them, or either that, or they're mm-hmm. in in an outside kennel or in the pole barn. Um, but it's just awesome to, to, to walk up there, whether it's in the spring or in the summer, in the fall, and, and just really witness what's, what's moving around. And, um, I'm, I've, you know, I've done it a little bit different. I kind of, I tried, I tried to plant multiple species and I, I failed multiple times at that. Um, so I've kind of been a one more, uh, one species guy now. Um, you know, my plot this year, uh, is corn, uh, and sorghum right next to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. and it's, uh, it's worked out extremely well. 
and uh, it's it's had birds and it's provided uh, cover cover and food when needed. And my plan this next year uh, is just to leave it and let it be a weedy mess come spring. <laughs> and uh, I don't know, maybe shoot a turkey out of it, but more so, um, you know, focus on nesting cover for for birds and and for. Uh, uh, that habitat for chicks. Well, I get a kick out of how you like the buckwheat because buckwheat is a cool thing. I it mean, is. it's a cool plant. And uh, the only thing disappointing about buckwheat is one time it was a, we, you know, we had a disaster. So it's, you know, July already and we don't have anything planted. And I went out and planted, and it wasn't big, maybe two acres, solid buckwheat. And that stuff's a broadleaf and it gets big and, you know, it gets big enough. Mm-hmm. And you really look like you got something out there. And it flowers and then the first frost comes by and, it looks worse than a bean field. I mean, it's just <laughs> nothing, nothing there. Except pheasants love it. They'll eat the heck out of that stuff. Oh, yeah. We've got a lot of birds with you know, you, a pile full of that. You talked about how, like, if you have certain weather events, and I think northern Iowa this year, I know a, a couple different private landers down there that I've gotten to know over the years that mm-hmm. are pheasants forever guys and, and call us for help with things. And I want to say, say <coughs> excuse me, in some areas in northern Iowa, I think between like May, June, up into July, I had like what? It was like 30 inches. Of yeah. Rain. It was yeah. something massive. Yeah. And these guys weren't even able to plant their food plots because they're too focused on, yeah. you know, getting their regular crops in, their yeah. commodity crops. So, you know, they would they would call us and ask like, what, what, what can we plant? And this is into like, you know, early July, even late July. And the one thing we had was we had, we had buckwheats and we had millets and we got a couple different um, signature series mixes that we were able to provide. I mean, that was the only thing that had mm-hmm. enough time to grow during that. And mm-hmm. they said, well, you know, it, it, it turned out okay. And the birds are, are getting some food out of it. You know, there's, does that provide much cover during the winter? Absolutely not. But, um, those, those, uh, smaller types of, of grains and whatnot, they're, they're good, which I think that leads us into, can we talk, can we talk a little bit about cover crops maybe, or, or just some of the different things that people are, are doing? Cause I'm seeing it, I'm seeing it in South, South Dakota, whether, you know, let it's me, turnips or radishes. Let me just finish one thing. Cause yep. we talked about it, about equipment, mm-hmm. you know, um, a planter is a great thing to have. And, and if you know how to, uh, operate and you, if you're lucky enough to find the old manual for those old John Deere 7,000 planters, or a lot of people, a lot of people, what I have is, a, is around 2014, when we had the boom in farming a few years ago, everybody traded in their planters. You know, we were kind of tra- changing to new technology with, with planters, and, and yet everybody, you know, there was some money out there in the land, and so they upgraded those planters. So there was a great opportunity. A lot of people were taking those planters and those planter boxes and making their own uh, custom planters selling a lot to, tr- to truck farmers, you know, or folks that are planting um, sweet corn plats. And they were three-point hitch, and they were they were beautiful. And I've got one of them for Habitat Forever, and uh, that thing's been wonderful. But I still had to learn how to use it. You've also got a drill. You know, you can use the drill. The Truax drill, the key to the Truax drill, is basically taking the depth bands off of the drill, off the double disc openers. You only have to take one side off. Any... I apologize for all the people that would not know what the heck I'm talking about now, but anybody who's dealt with a Truex drill for native seed, if you take one of the, one side of the depth bands off and you're going to send that, it'll it'll end up getting that seed down to that inch and a half to two inches mm. for corn, so that you can so that you can plant it. You can broadcast it. If you broadcast, you need to get a parcel piece of or a whole harrow, and put the teeth all the way down, and you need to go over it so that you get that 
seed planted deep enough. If, it, if it's sorghum, mm-hmm. you might just do it once. If it's corn, you'd probably do the field twice to get it down deep that, enough. That was the biggest problem that I had when I first started out is that seed-to-soil seed contact. Yeah. I'd go through and, and spread that out uh, and run, run the hair over, run the disc over it, and I'd go through and I'd go, Wow. I left a lot of seed on top, you know, on, on top of the dirt. So, but sometimes that's not so bad because usually when you broadcast, you plant too much seed. Mm-hmm. So everything that's left on top, you know, is kind of good. It's not going to grow because you got plenty underneath. Kind and, of a waste of money, though, right? Well, <laughs> you know, and, and sometimes you got to use what you got. We uh-huh. we were doing a project over along the Missouri River that we were getting paid for. And we were doing a lot of food plots, and we were running out of time. We used an old bed spring one day. Yep, I've and, done that too at my house. We've done about we we did about a hundred <laughs> acres of dang uh, sunflower fields, running over it with an old bed spring to get the stuff planted, and it was just the right soil. We we found this and said this will work. What the heck? When we when I first <laughs> bought my property, um, that there was a an old an old house that had burnt down or an old garage, so I went through and I'm I'm pulling out tires and I found the bed spring. There was also a huge and also a huge like uh, I beam or I bar. I don't know what you want. You set it. that on top for a little weight. Yeah, I'll basically. Bet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To get to to make sure I got that 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 seed in there. But it's funny. It's just the things you learn after planting for a while. And then you know the first year I was all all concerned about. I'd go out there and I'd I'd see these little holes in the ground and I'm trying to figure out you know what exactly what exactly uh, you know is is maybe eating eating mm-hmm. just the sprouts coming up you know mm-hmm. and. Then my wife sending me pictures of a whole bunch of sandhill cranes, you know, going 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 through there and pulling stuff out. And those are things; those are just things that we deal with. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I, I, you know, it's uh, guess and guess and check and and uh, try different things, but do your research and and you can come out with a yeah. with a really good plot. Well, so let's talk about that. Trying different things. You've alluded to it um, a couple times. Cover crops, uh, turnips, radishes. The the new wave of food plots uh, over the last well, couple of years. One the, one of the things is that with, there's not a lot of new stuff that comes up with food plots. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's why sometimes people get bored with them because it's by guys you better just grind it out every year and get them in. One of the things that I've seen has been pretty darn interesting. It started. Up in northwest, northeast, uh, South Dakota, the department started doing it. Is they were putting brassicas in their corn food plots, and they, because we talked about weeds before, mm-hmm. um, one of the things they do is they they uh, they cultivate a lot. Their idea is well, if you if you want it, if you want foxtail in there, you want good weed control, but you want foxtail. Let's go back to what they did when we had a lot of foxtail. So they ca- they cultivate all their corn fields. And with their last cultivation, you know, so you think about it, that corn plants up about knee high and they're getting through one last time with a cultivator and they're broadcasting turnips behind them. Hmm. And uh, what really sold me on it is one of the guys said, God, we had a youth hunt out on this big state area, 400 acres. And he said, we hunted the whole darn thing and nobody, sh- nobody pu- pulled the trigger. It's like it was empty. And we went through the 10 acre food plot. And he says, I'm not kidding you. Every brood in the dang area was inside this dang food plot, and whatever it was, you know, hmm. it was it was an interesting interesting enough story where I said I got to try this, you know, I got to yeah. I got to do that, and I think it's just you know when I did it this year, I I waited too long. I went in and then literally my my sons and I went out and threw it by hand, and got it in the rows, and and I, I checked back in three weeks, and I checked back in a month, and. And, you know, I was getting this stuff that looked like it had a turnip bottom, but it just, I knew it wasn't turnips. And it wasn't until that corn dried out 
you know, and died. And all of a sudden, these turnips start going crazy in there. And so it's kind of neat because you're looking through, and there's these real neat green rows. Mm-hmm. I don't know if the deer really found them this year. I think they did right once it finally got good and frozen. But so so that f- was my question, right? Because the green, you're talking about finding birds in there. That's because the green's pulling in insects. That's what I got to believe. But the, yeah. Or it's just the green material. You know, Pheasants they like eating, aren't going to yeah. eat turnips or radishes or any of this I stuff. I don't know about that. I don't think I – Pheasants eat a lot of greens. Okay. Oh, you know, so they're eating nothing the wrong. Yeah. Yep. Hmm. Yeah. And, and then the deer are eating the the tuber. Yeah. So think about think about insects and pheasants. Mm-hmm. Generally, pheasants are on ins- when when they hatch. They generally depend on on insects right. up until the point when foxtail, and this is just the the what we used in Iowa. When foxtail matured, they drop the the insects and they go to foxtail because actually more protein in the in the, the seeds. in the seeds and whether they'd go back to it, you know, in this in this goofy food plot situation, or or the other thing could be is that the hen's interested in it, and the chicks are just following the dang hen in. Sure. Whatever the deal is, they like that dang uh, stuff in a food plot, and it made things a little more interesting. And and I couldn't believe we threw the stuff on the ground, so it didn't get, you know, it didn't get planted right, mm-hmm. and there were still nice sized turnips up there. Into the you know we we were out there the last time I really looked at it was. Iowa youth season, so it would have been you know right at the end of October, um, and they were they were looking nice. And then I came back, I came back in in late late December, and uh, they were gone. Hmm. So I think the deer finally found them and came in and and knocked them out. To, to answer your question that you alluded to from earlier, I've I've actually seen seen pictures this year shared with us, whether it's on Facebook or some of the trips that I've gone on this year of uh big big time ranchers mm-hmm. right big time ranchers running beef cattle and that type of thing who are planting planting big fields using using turnips using radishes and early early season they're finding a ton of success going through those and shooting roosters because same thing they're filled with they're filled up with grasshoppers and they're filled up uh with that that green matter that those right. those crops are producing so mm. it's, it's pretty just a different different way of looking at things you know i've seen people use uh, uh, wheat or wheat stubble um, as a, as a nesting habitat, you know, mm-hmm. in the spring. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's crazy to me when you think about it, but then you actually see the pictures of this stuff growing inside cornfields and everything else, and you're just like, wow, there's there's opportunity there for kind of a um, multi um, multi use, I guess. Well, and that's where my mind was heading. We've talked a lot about, you know, pheasants and quail and food plots that you would plant on your dream property if you're a bird hunter. What if you're like Jared, right? That well, likes the deer hunt, right? It, it, on top of pheasant hunting, on top of quail. Oh, you want it all. No. You want it all. No, Bob. I am not going there. Deer are not <laughs> coming into this because then we'll be on for another eight hours and this is a podcast, and I know there's no phone here, but somebody will call in griping about what we came up with <laughs> when it comes to deer. You know, I'm as simple as can be on that stuff. I know there's all kinds of things, and I think the brassicas are neat, the turnips are neat, you know, because those deer will use them, and you think, what the heck are you doing digging up a turnip, you know, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. But they love that stuff. I'm simple. I go, I wait until the 1st of August, and I plant buck oats. Hmm. Now, buck oats in themselves sound silly. <laughs> But I think, but, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're an oat that's not going to hit. I mean, it, if you plant it late enough, it's not going to head out. It's supposedly got a little more sugar content to it. I don't know, 
But what I like about buck oats is it draws does. And in my little place, those does come in, and I if I got a bunch of does there, I know come November there's going to be at least a few bucks mm-hmm. hanging around. Mm-hmm. And I'm pretty – I mean, I look at that whole deer thing, and it's just crazy. You know, I sell a deer mix just because I get so mad about how expensive they can be, and they're just clovers, you know. Um, but, uh, God, do we really want to go there? <laughs> <laughs> well, the the other thing that I was curious about is, you know, we have talked pretty um, exclusively about, you know, Minnesota, Iowa, a little bit of South Dakota – but, but, you know, our members want habitat and want food plots, you know, in, in Nebraska, in Kansas, in Montana. How much difference in what we've talked about when you live in western, you know, say say the, a western state like um, the Pheasant Range in Montana, Those, where it's not going to be quite as moist. Yeah, and as rainfall go, goes down, it, it there really is a big difference in what you can talk about. and. And I'm sure they've got good ideas. There's some open-pollinated uh, sorghums out there, dryland sorghums, that they say work pretty good. But, you know, I'm a Midwesterner. I don't get as much chance. But I talk to my guys in Montana. We've had people as far as out to Ontario, Oregon, and, and did some work there. I, I tend to go to more of um, cereal grains. Hmm. You know, I, I've seen it here on quail focus areas and how it works in the Midwest, planting winter wheat and then – you know, let it sit the whole next year, mature. Don't do anything with it. Let a few weeds come in and let it sit in there over winter. Mm-hmm. And in good protected areas, that does a good job. I think about our habitat specialists out in uh, out in uh, uh, Denton, Montana. Right, yeah, Coffee uh, Creek area. Coffee Creek. You know, they use a lot of wheat, spring wheat, um, cereal grains out there um, for their food plots, and it seems to me that they do just fine. Hmm. And and you know, in that dry land situation. You know, you can't try to, to make it what it's not. You know, we do lucky where we've got a few situations in the the guys out in uh, the Black Hills down there by um, uh, Angostura Reservoir. Our guys down there are lucky enough to have a little bit of irrigation and can do a little more. But where you don't have that opportunity, you got to stick with, with what's going to adapt to that dry land situation. I'm sure somebody could come on and give some better information, but I, I like sticking with um, – cereal grains you know and then in western nebraska in western south dakota you know there's dry land stuff that will fit and and will grow there i think a lot of times i like to plant you know i tend to try to plant as early you know you, you got to wait but but in some cases you try to plant as early as possible more so so that plant can utilize all the moisture the potential spring, yeah. that's there in the spring hmm. i want to talk uh, i want to talk really quick about we always get a lot of questions about, you know, food, food plot seed program mm-hmm. and, what, and what we offer. And I just kind of want to look at it from, from the cha- the chapter side of things too, because we get a lot of questions about that. And I have a lot of folks that come to me in the spring and say, Hey, do you guys, do you guys have seed that's offered, um, you know, that, that we as landowners can use? Um, so to answer that question, we do, we do have seed. We've got signature mixes that you can buy online. Um, but we also have a lot of chapters throughout the United States that run good food plot seed programs. Um, but people need to understand that all of those different things, those orders are really done in the fall. So when we talk about preparation, right, yeah. um, those those chapter orders are done in the fall. Um, so, you know, people that are looking for mixes, you know, particularly when you get into like the, the corn 
beans, sorghum, special, specialty mixes. You can order those uh, all the time through us throughout the year. Um, we have a great, great program, and I, I wholeheartedly believe we have one of the best food plot seed programs out there. But if you're a local landowner, um, you know, wanting to work with a local chapter, um, there's a lot of chapters out there that, that run their food plot seed programs, either do a distribution uh, or they have a, have a pickup somewhere. Um, and, but those, those orders are made in the fall and delivered in the spring and, and then put out from, that, from, mm -hmm. from those particular areas. So as people need, as they're planning, uh, the fall is the time to be you know, kind of in, in contact with us, getting ready, to, getting ready to put those out on the landscape. So if, if folks want to contact you, and there's a lot of things that they could contact you about, is seed, food plot seed, um, native grass seed, uh, prescribed burning, habitat guidance, uh, all sorts of different levels. If folks want to reach you, how do they contact Matt O'Connor? Well, they can go to the website and get my phone number, but, you know, giving me a call or emailing me, it's easiest. And with Pheasants Forever, it's always first initial, the first name, and the, and the last name. So it's mconnor at pheasantsforever.org. And uh, O'Connor, you got to do O-R at the end. <laughs> and it's two ends, ER, right? Catch you back. Um, <laughs> yeah, two ends. And my phone number, my cell phone, or my office phone is 563 Again, you can talk about food plot seed, design, Native grass seed for variety of states, right? Um, CRP mixes. You bet. Prescribed burning. Um, and habitat specialists around the country get, could go through you to reach him. Yeah, I do. And I, and I apologize to some people that, to have to send them on to another phone number. But, um, you know, if I can't help you, I, I definitely can find somebody who can. So if you've got questions, go ahead and ask. So I'll, uh, I'll throw in kind of my, my last words here in that, you know, we talked a little bit about the beginning, but I met Matt uh, 10 years ago, 10 years ago when I started for this organization. I, I still uh, hold it to this day that he is probably one of the most passionate people I have ever met when it comes to, when it comes to pheasants, pheasant hunting, upland habitat, and, and wildlife management. Um, if you were in the state during that 2010, 2011, and you know we'd we'd give the we'd give the you'd see the forecast come out and talk about how those those birds are screwed for the next year. You could just see a tear starting to form in Matt's eye from across the room. The guy the guy would just break break down, you know. But he's always on the on the opposite side of that. He's always looking, you know, what what can pheasants forever? What can I? What can our chapters? What can our volunteers do better? Um, so that when we have one of those good years, we can try to try to get back. Uh, you know, to great pheasant populations. And in a, in a state like Iowa, um, you know, we talked a little bit about it earlier that they're on their way back right now. Um, I've talked to a lot of people down there. Winter, as you pointed out, it, in that state anyways, has been almost non-existent in some of those areas. Um, it, you know, if, we, if, we, if that holds true and we have a, a fairly dry spring, um, man, I think there's a lot of good things that can happen in Iowa and, and a lot of those other states. But uh, Matt has always been my go-to for habitat questions. Mm -hmm. uh, we just sent one t towards him the other day, um, you know, related to, related to habitat and winter cover in the Midwest. And, and uh, he's just an overall um, habitat champion. So it's, uh, it's, it's been great working with you for 10 years. And, and uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show and, and sharing your 
expertise. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose that's going to take 40 well, bucks I'll, And I'll balance it out at 50, but, okay. you know. If you uh, do reach out to Matt, <laughs> and what ask him to do is uh, the man that lives down by the river impersonation. <laughs> yeah, well, I'll just tell you, he's got a pretty darn good sense of humor and can do some... Uh, some very Let's funny impersonation. He is an uh, <laughs> amateur stand-up comic in his free time in, in uh, Dubuque, Iowa. So look for him on the circuit, too. <laughs> M. O'Connor at pheasantsforever.org. Everything you need to know about food plots, habitat plantings, prescribed burning. Uh, look up Matt. He's been a biologist with this organization for 30 years and with no end in sight. So uh, give him a shout. Uh, Jarrett, thanks for joining me today. Uh, good good segment about um, food plots and habitat, and we'll, uh, we'll tee up some more habitat discussions as we head into spring here. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. Thanks a lot for the opportunity. Yeah. I'm sure well, as soon, I'll be as soon as I hit the stop on the record, we'll back or not. Hey, at least, at least you have something to listen to again at 2 a.m. in the morning when you're when you're up, uh, you know, doing whatever you do at 2 a.m. So. I'm 60. I'm going to the bathroom. I will say that. that. I don't know. Thanks for listening to this episode of On the Wing Podcast with Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever. Thanks to Jared Wickland and our guest, uh, Matt O'Connor. We will catch you down the road. We will catch you down the road.